Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast, and one of my favorite show themes, Urban Legends. As most of you know, an urban legend is a genre of folklore which consists of stories said to be true, but usually lacking in actual proof. The stories range from funny to tragic to downright creepy, and many have been with us for years. We've covered some great urban legends here at this podcast. Just find our show page on your host and search for Urban Legends, and you'll find a bunch. Urban legends lead to great stories, and our first one, The Beast of Bodmin Moor, is no exception. This is your host, John Hagedorn. I was watching a Season 3 episode of a BBC Mystery Theater detective show called Endeavor on Amazon Prime the other night, and the plot involved a man-eating tiger which had escaped from its cage and was mauling people. No one knew it was a tiger, as it had not been seen, and theories were plentiful. Obviously, there are no large predatory cats in the U.K. outside of zoos, and since no zoos had reported missing any, it was first thought that it was a madman making the attacks look like a big cat had committed them. It was beginning to turn the English countryside into a bloodbath, and the police had their hands full trying to figure it out. One of the detectives posited the theory that it was a big cat and suggested, half in jest, that it was the beast of Bodmin Moor. That fairly recent legend comes from Cornwall, England, after a series of sightings in 1978 involving mutilated livestock became known, and many believe that a black panther was behind it all. This urban legend seems to have some teeth, pun intended. On Tuesday, July 21, 1998, BBC News posted an article titled The Beast of Bodmin Captured on Video, in which a -a three-and-a-half-foot animal was filmed with the caption, Footage may show a species of wild cat previously thought extinct. This finally gave some credence to what the locals in mid-Cornwall had been saying for years. There are big cats, according to them, roaming the backwoods and countrysides, which are large enough to attack and devour livestock. And if they're large enough to do that, they could also kill children if they became predisposed. These warnings had all been presented to the British departments responsible for public safety after 60 big cat sightings had been reported in Cornwall since 1983, mostly around Bogman Moor. A detailed report of these sightings received a rather harsh rebuke from the Ministry of Agriculture, Fisheries, and Food on July 19, 1995, which read, The Ministry does not investigate fairies. Ouch! Naturally, the people of Cornwall were insulted. Here are the details. In January of 1995, the Ministry of Agriculture, Fisheries, and Food, MAFF, 
commissioned the Agricultural Development Advisory Service, the ADAS, to conduct an investigation into the possibility that large exotic cats were killing livestock on Bodmin Moor in Cornwall. The events that immediately preceded this investigation included the alleged sightings of large cats on and around the Bodmin Moor area, the depredation of sheep and cattle, and aggressive encounters involving what were alleged to be free-living, large, exotic cats. The cats were described as Labrador Retriever or German Shepherd-sized animals with long tails. The majority of witnesses stated the cats were black or brown in color. The descriptions of the larger cats most closely resembled the puma or the leopard, although a number of smaller cat species were reported also. In August of 1994, North Cornwall MP Paul Tyler became concerned that the big cats reported to be killing sheep on Bodmin Moor may be posing a risk to humans. He organized an official conference on the matter. The meeting was attended by MPs, police officers, landowners, and representatives from both the National Farmers Union and MAAF. Several months later, MAAF launched an official investigation, and ADAS consultants Simon Baker, who was a mammal biologist, and Charlie Wilson, who was a zoologist, were dispatched to Bodmin Moor with, with a budget of 8,200 pounds. The scientist's job was to assess the evidence that public witnesses had gathered to back up their claim that there were big cats living on Bodmin Moor and that these cats were responsible for killing sheep and other livestock. During the course of the investigation, the ADAS consultants examined a number of sheep carcasses presented by several farmers. In addition, they looked at tracks alleged to be those of big cats. They also considered photographic evidence and video footage, in many cases visiting the original locations where the images had been taken to obtain scales against which to assess the size of the animals in the photographs. It was Charlie Wilson's view that if exotic cats were present on Bodmin Moor, they were probably descendants of cats released as a result of the 1976 Dangerous Wild Animal Acts, which made it unlawful for people to keep or board dangerous wild animals without a specific license. Six months after it began, Junior Minister Mrs. Angela Browning presented the results of the investigation to a press conference in July of 1995. A report to the investigation was also published. It was called The Presence of Big Exotic Cats in the Bodmin Area and Their Possible Impact on Livestock. Based on the evidence they had examined, the ADAS consultants concluded, There is no verifiable evidence for the presence of a big cat. There is no significant threat to livestock from a big cat in Bodmin Moor. The conclusion was for many a disappointing one. The criticism against the ADAS scientists and MAFF was in some cases pretty loud. One wonders what evidence they want, one citizen said. Do they want us to turn up with a child's carcass in a black polyethylene bag? Others vented concern and frustration. We're in a hell of a position because they, the big cats, are breeding fast. For some, convinced of a government cover-up, the 1995 investigation was considered a whitewash that didn't meet the planned objectives. What can be stated is that the ADAS consultants were diligent in carrying out their examination of the evidence presented to them, and it is highly likely that their conclusion was correct based on the evidence they saw and assessed. For example, they concluded that the carcasses they examined did not show signs of depredation by big cats. Similarly, they concluded that the tracks shown to them were made by large dogs. The photographic and video evidence was dismissed for showing not big cats, but in fact domestic cats. From this latter example, we can conclude that people had either made a genuine mistake 
or were so desperate to have someone believe them, they were willing to try and fake the existence of the beast of Bodmin Moor. If a criticism must be made, if only in the interest of balance, then what could be added is that the 1995 investigation was limited in its scope. By this the writer says, I do not mean geographically limited, I mean limited by methodology. The ADAS consultants looked thoroughly, yes, but they looked thoroughly only at evidence gathered by members of the public. While I feel it is unjust to call the investigation a whitewash, it is fair to say that this was not a rigorous attempt to survey or to detect the presence of exotic cats by modern, scientific, or indeed traditional methods that were available in 1995. In other words, that investigation was likely to fail from the start. I state this for the simple reason that the general public were highly unlikely to produce definitive proof simply because such proof is exceptionally rare and difficult to obtain, even in locations where cats naturally occur. One cannot say whether the failure to carry out a more technically advanced survey based on a scientific approach was the result of ignorance, poor planning, bad science, financial restriction, or otherwise. Commenting on the Bodmin Moore inquiry that he had instigated, Paul Tyler, MP, said, The mystery has not been solved, but deepened. He said he would remain agnostic until definitive proof or disproof was available. But the Beast of Bodmin Moore investigation was officially over, and the results were inconclusive. The file remained open, and the MAFF stated that if more evidence was gathered and made available, it too would be scrutinized. Now you can't say fairer than that, can you? but the ministry had their final say. They wrote, The subject generates a great deal of media interest. A reported sighting in one area is often followed by a sudden flurry in the press of reported sightings in other areas. Although reports are often made with genuine sincerity, the ministry has to be assured that there is a genuine case to investigate. Unfortunately, it is not unknown for practical jokers to be involved, such as the one who planted the skull of a leopard in a stream near Bodmin Moor. I take the point of the Honorable Member for North Cornwall that, although the Beast of Bodmin Moor may be a tourist attraction, the Beast of Bodmin is not. It turned out that the skull was from a leopard-skin rug and had been planted. Despite such reports, the Ministry takes these matters seriously. There are a number of big cats in zoos, circuses, and in private ownership, and it is not impossible that some of them may have escaped or been illegally released into the wild. The security of big cats held in captivity is the matter for the Department of the Environment, Transport, and the Regions. The Ministry is aware that a total of 16 big cats have escaped into the wild since 1977. They include lions, tigers, leopards, jaguars, and pumas, but all but two animals were at large for only one day. The Ministry's response continues. I recall that at least three of the lions escaped from a circus in Grinsby, I remember it very well because one unfortunate person was quite badly savaged. He ran to the car in which his wife was sitting, but she was so terrified by the lions that she refused to open the door. I am quite sure that that was due to her fear and nothing to do with any acrimony between her and her husband. Because there is a risk that big cats can escape into the wild and because of the threat that such animals could pose to livestock, the Ministry investigates each report in which it is alleged that livestock has been attacked. Reports to the Ministry are usually made by farmers whose animals have been attacked. In addition, the Ministry takes note of articles in the press describing big cat incidents and will consider them if there is evidence that livestock are at risk. Incidentally, of the 16 escaped large cats, the two that stayed at large for some time were a leopard and a puma. 
"'the leopard managed to avoid capture for seven days, "'after which it was cage-trapped. "'The origin of the puma, "'which was captured near Inverness in 1980, "'is unclear, "'but it was quite tame "'and has subsequently been kept in a wildlife park. "'That sounds like a case of the semi-domesticated animal "'that was released into the wild. "'We repeat, we will follow up all cases "'where there is evidence of a big cat "'that can be corroborated "'and all cases where it is alleged "'that livestock are being taken.' It is impossible to say categorically that no big cats are living wild in Britain, so it is only right and proper that the Ministry should continue to investigate serious claims of their existence, but only when there is a threat to livestock and when there is clear evidence that can be validated. Don't worry out there. All of you are perfectly safe, and we've got everything under control. And that's all we have for the urban legend of the Beast of Bodmin Moor. Next up, a rushing fishing expedition, right after these sponsor messages. In the macho culture of Siberia, it's considered commonplace for fishermen to break into a frozen lake by placing a stick of dynamite into the ice, lighting it, and waiting for the blast to create a hole in the ice. With any luck, a few hundred fish are knocked senseless, and by selling them, you've not only got dinner for a few starving families, but vodka and cigarette money enough to last the winter. As this urban legend goes, a pair of friends who spent most of their time hunting and fishing together invested in a brand new pickup truck, complete with caterpillar tracks on the back wheels that could handle the worst that the Siberian winter could throw at them. They hadn't been able to put much money down and had arranged to pay on installments, and they were thinking that this big fish catch could help them make a payment or two along the way. They wanted to christen the new truck with a trip to a remote lake which was renowned for its fishing, but hard to get to in the winter, so that they could earn bragging rights with their comrades. And this lake was not only big and remote, but deep as well, so deep that instruments couldn't measure it. The thinking was that there had to be a monster fish in this lake, or many of them. They loaded up their new truck for an extended trip into the wilderness and brought their faithful hunting dog, food for two weeks, a tent, high-powered rifles, fishing gear, and an insulated box containing twelve sticks of dynamite, which they had bought from a pal who worked in a mine. "'Careful,' he had said. "'These have short fuses, maybe twenty seconds, so get clear quickly.' This meant that instead of positioning the dynamite in a pre-dug hole and then running away across the ice, they would need to throw the stick out on the ice and let it do its work. It's no fun trying to run away from dynamite when you're slipping and sliding on the ice. That's a little too risky, even for Russians to try. The trip to the lake took a few hours, two of those hours off-road, and they enjoyed a smooth ride in their heated seats talking about their wives and listening to the six-speaker Bang & Olufsen premier sound system playing some old American 50s favorites by Chuck Berry and Elvis. Actually, they did a pretty good job singing Going to a Party in the County Jail. The prison band was there and they began to wail. In English, with Russian accents. Even their Malamute in the back seat held a few bars. Once they got to the lake, they set up the tent and campsite, let the dog loose to prowl for and hopefully scare away any large predators, and reconnoitered the frozen lake for the best place to park where the ice was thickest to hold the weight of the truck and still give them the chance to chuck the dynamite sticks out a good distance away from the truck. It was well into the winter, and the ice was many feet thick within maybe 30 yards of shore. So as the driver pulled out on the ice, his bud stood in the back of the pickup. "'Okay, this is good,' said the driver, who was parked facing the lake. He pointed out his window to about 10 o'clock ahead and to the left of them. "'Throw it over there, as far as you can.' His pal, cigar between his teeth, 
lit the fuse, and gave the dynamite a good throw, just as the Malamute entered his backfield of vision. Having seen his master's arm pull back with a large stick in it, the dog figured it was game time, and the fun was just beginning, so he charged out, picked up the dynamite, and returned with it, dropping it right near the driver's door, and barking for someone to pick it up. The two men shouted for the dog to drop it, which, since he was a trained hunting dog, he promptly did. And the two men ran, slipping and stumbling, with the big dog following, toward the shore. They had just made it when the explosion came, which lifted the whole truck a foot or so in the air before it came down, causing the ice to crack and slowly give way. And the two men watched in horror as their investment sank slowly below the ice. From that point on, the trip became a survival test for the men and the dog, which they passed, thanks in part to the Malamutes carrying off a few wolves and one bear during the week it took them to hike out of the wilderness. When fully recovered, as the legend goes, their insurance policy wouldn't pay off because they'd used dynamite, which couldn't be classified as accidental. The truck is still somewhere in the deepest lake in Russia. The two pals both lost their wives, and the latest account has them singing Heartbreak Hotel at a local pub. Ever heard of the 27 Club? I saw a viral picture of Rolling Stones guitarist Keith Richards, whose rugged face shows his age and a few more, and who has become the Internet's go-to meme for surviving to old age against all odds. In this picture, he's kneeling, cigarette dangling in his mouth, next to a young boy, with the words, We've got to start thinking about what kind of world we're leaving for Keith Richards. There are many other Keith Richards memes, but a similar one has Keith holding his guitar and kneeling down and facing a little boy of about four with the caption, Keith Richards teaching Willie Nelson how to play guitar. Well, Keith is not a member of the 27 Club, and missed that dubious distinction decades ago, and we wish he and Willie the best, while wondering if hemp really does have some kind of preservative qualities. The 27 Club is a list consisting mostly of popular musicians, artists, and actors. Although the claim of a statistical spike for the death of musicians at that age has been refuted by scientific research, it remains a cultural phenomenon, documenting the deaths of celebrities, many noted for their high-risk lifestyles. Because the club is entirely notional, there is no official membership. The most common causes of death in this club are drug and alcohol abuse or violent means such as homicide, suicide, or transportation-related accidents. The club has been repeatedly cited in music magazines, journals, and the daily press. Several exhibitions have been devoted to the idea, as well as novels, films, and stage plays. The deaths of several 27-year-old popular musicians between 1969 and 1971 led to the belief that deaths are more common at this age, those well-known musicians being Brian Jones, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, and Jim Morrison of The Doors, who all died at age 27 between 1969 and 1971. At the time, the coincidence gave rise to some comment, but it wasn't until Kurt Cobain's 1994 death at age 27 that the idea of a 27 club began to catch on in public perception. After it left the 1969 to 1971 window, the list began to expand rapidly. Blues musician Robert Johnson, who died in 1938, is one of the earliest popular musicians to be included in lists of 27 club members. According to Hendrix and Cobain's biographer Charles R. Cross, the growing importance of the media internet, magazines, and television, and the response to an interview of Cobain's mother were jointly responsible for such theories. An excerpt from a statement that Cobain's mother, Wendy Freidenberg Cobain O'Connor, made in the Aberdeen, Washington newspaper The Daily World, 
"'Now he's gone and joined that stupid club. "'I told him not to join that stupid club.' "'Referred to Hendricks, Joplin, and Morrison "'dined at the same age, according to Cross. "'Other authors share his view. "'On the other hand, Eric Siegelstad, "'writer of the 27s, The Greatest Myth of Rock and Roll, "'assumed that Cobain's mother referred to the death "'of his two uncles and his great-uncle, "'all of whom had also committed suicide.' According to Cross, the events have led a set of conspiracy theorists to suggest the absurd notion that Kurt Cobain intentionally timed his death so he could join the 27 Club. In 2011, 17 years after Cobain's death, Amy Winehouse died at age 27, prompting a renewed swell of media attention devoted to the club once again. Three years earlier, she had expressed a fear of dying at that age. An individual does not necessarily have to be a musician to qualify as a member of the 27 Club. Rolling Stone included television actor Jonathan Brandis, who committed suicide in 2003, in a list of the 27 Club members. Anton Yelkin, who had played in a punk rock band but was primarily known as a film actor, was also described as a member of the club upon his death in 2016. Likewise, Jean-Michael Basquiat has been included in 27 Club lists, despite the relative brevity of his music career and his prominence as a graffiti artist and painter. And do keep in mind, listeners, you can't join this grisly brother and sisterhood unless you're fairly famous, so don't even think about it. Also, there's a rumor out there that surviving all of life's mishaps and downslides can really pay off in old age with a little luck and perseverance. A study by university academics published in the British Medical Journal in December 2011 concluded that there was no increase in the risk of death for musicians at the age of 27, stating that there were equally small increases at ages 25 and 32. The study noted that young adult musicians have a higher death rate than the general young adult population, surmising that fame may increase the risk of death among musicians, but this risk is not limited to age 27. The selection criteria for the musicians included in the study, based on having scored a UK number one album between 1956 and 2007, included several notable members of the 27 Club, including Hendrix, Joplin, Morrison, Pete Ham, and Rod Pigman McKernan. A 2014 article at The Conversation suggested that statistical evidence shows popular musicians are most likely to die at the age of 56. And that was 2.2% compared to 1.3% at 27. And in case you're wondering, this urban legend is known and talked about in modern media, especially in the music world. These are just a few examples. The name of the song, 27, by Fall Out Boy, from their 2008 album, Folle A Deux, is a reference to the club. The lyrics explore the hedonistic lifestyles common in rock and roll. Pete Wentz, the primary lyricist of Fall Out Boy, wrote the song because he felt that he was living a similarly dangerous lifestyle. John Craigie's song, 28, which appeared on his 2009 album, Montana Tale, and 2018 live album, Opening for Steinbeck is written from the perspective of 27 club members Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, and Kurt Cobain, as each contemplates their respective mortality and imagines what they would do differently if I could, quote, only make it to 28. Craigie wrote the song when he himself was age 27. And the theme is also referenced in the song 27 Forever by Eric Burden on his 2013 album Till Your River Runs Dry. Those are just a few examples, but there are dozens. So, as an urban legend, the 27 Club is out there. Looking at it analytically, at least with regard to musicians, many died from drug abuse or other causes of death connected with drug or alcohol use. 
Some died in random accidents, like car accidents, or falling off of buildings. There are really only about six or seven names that are well-known musicians, in the list. Most people do agree on one thing. If there really is a rock and roll heaven, according to the Righteous Brothers song, it must be one hell of a band. Ever been in Long Island, New York? You know, that 118-mile strip of heavily populated land that stretches from Brooklyn eastward to Montauk Point? Well, there's a deep lake there that holds a mysterious urban legend, as well as the souls of the 160 people or more who have drowned there since the days when people started keeping records. It's called Lake Ronkonkoma, and it's Long Island's largest, deepest lake, a majestic expanse surrounded by scenic woods and lined with white sand. Thousands come to its shores each summer to enjoy the water and bask in the unspoiled natural surroundings. But there are scores of local residents who won't even dip their toes in Lake Ronkonkoma, and it's not because of its recent bout with algae bloom. Buried in the lake's waters, they say, are untold lost bodies, the victims of a centuries-old ghost who regularly drags young men to their graves. I would not swim here, said one local to a journalist out hunting for a story. Too big of a risk. Legend has it that in the 1600s, a young Setauket Indian princess named Tuscawanta fell madly in love with a blonde-bearded woodcutter she spotted one day across the water. In one version of the spooky Suffolk County saga, the Native American Juliet catches the eye of a Romeo woodsman, Hugh Birdsall, and he becomes equally entranced with her, but her father forbids her from seeing the white English settler. The distraught princess then spends every day for the next seven years writing Birdsall love letters on pieces of bark and trying to send them to him by floating them across the water. As the legend goes, she never gets a response, and in despair, finally rows out into the middle of the lake and stabs herself in the heart. According to locals, who love to retell the tragic tale in one version or another, every year since, the Lady of the Lake has made it her mission to grab a young man from her watery grave to replace her lost love. If you're a true Ronkonkoma native, these things are in your blood, one local said. Drowning statistics back up the legend, some residents say. There were at least 160 drownings at the lake between the mid to late 1800s and late 1970s, averaging well over one year, and only three victims were women, said former longtime Lake Ronkonkoma lifeguard David Ignari, 74, citing his own research. Ignari, who has a doctorate in colonial American history, said that in the 34 years he helped guard the lake's beaches starting in the 60s, there were 30 drownings alone, all male victims. I've heard it for years, all the legends, the princess curse, I thought it was all malarkey, just myth, as a young man, Ignari said. Then he had a terrifying premonition about a drowning while guarding, witnessed instances where females inexplicably survived situations others would have died in, listened to Buddy's tales of their encounters with the heartsick princess, and lived to tell about his own brush with death in the lake. Maybe there is something to this legend, Ignari said. As the deepest lake on Long Island, Ronkonkoma has been called bottomless, although even the most strident believers in the Lady of the Lake acknowledge that isn't true. In reality, the lake is nearly 90 feet at its deepest, around 10 feet along the edges, and at some point features a dangerous, sudden 45-foot drop. But it is deep enough to keep some secrets as well. Virginia Shute, 72, who lives on the edge of the lake, said her uncle was a lifeguard there, briefly, when she was little. During his first week on the job, he dove off the diving board and came up with a body on him. He didn't know it, but somebody had drowned and was in the water. He quit after that she said. Shute said she doesn't consider the princess evil. I view her as a person whose heart was broken. 
Still, she admitted that she never takes any chances. When her son was in high school and planning to take a raft out onto the lake with some buddies, she hid the small boat so the boys couldn't go out. Shute said there have been so many drownings over the years that she can't hear the whirl of a helicopter anymore without tensing up. It means the search is on for yet another body. The sculpture of Tuscawanta, the Satakan Indian princess, which was made from a tree trunk, overlooks the lake. The retired lifeguard's recollections about the lake are just as troubling. He said that in the months leading up to July 4, 1965, when he was a lifeguard, he had the same dream every night for a week. I was diving in very, very deep for somebody, and I couldn't find them. Each time he reached the water surface in his dream, he saw fireworks. The dream was so unsettling that Ignari told his fellow guards, and just as a precaution, the town allowed me to bring more guards to the lake for that day, which was July 4th. We had a few minor rescues that day, Ignari said, and then the epileptic boy went down. We all cried as the police grappled with the body of the six-foot, fifteen-year-old boy. We saw him taken away, and I said to my guards, We're closing the beach today. Call the town. Tell them. As the days went by, I said, You know something? Maybe there is a princess. Maybe there is a curse. Ignari said he had his own possible breast with Tuscawanta about four or five years ago. He said he was swimming toward a local bar and grill on the edge of the lake known as the Lighthouse, and when he got close, he found himself swimming in place. And then I got picked up and got thrown back, he said. The legend does say that the princess lives in the deep hole near the lighthouse, and that's where I was. As dramatic as some locals' tales are, there are as many residents who dismiss the princess's story as just colorful folklore. The lake is now off-limits to swimmers because of algae bloom, according to signs in a visitor's parking lot at the lake. Whether or not that's been updated, we don't know. There's no historical proof that the princess ever lived, but Hugh Birdsall is believed to have been a real person who moved back to England and got married, according to one local historian. There have been several books, a movie project, a wall mural of the princess, and now a sculpture of her carved out of a local tree trunk. One local said, We just wish her well. I'm probably going to put Tuscawanta, rest in peace. I'm hoping it calms her down. Lake Ronkonkoma noticeably rises and falls every seven years, and even that is supposedly explained by the tale. It's weeping for them still, one local said of the lake, referring to the princess and her love. And that's as deep as this story's going to get. So it's on to the next one. It's the urban legend of the Bell Witch. The Bell Witch Haunting is a legend from southern United States folklore, and it's centered on the 19th century Bell family of northwest Robertson County, Tennessee. Farmer John Bell Sr. resided with his family along the Red River in an area currently near the town of Adams. According to legend, from 1817 to 1821, his family and the local area came under attack by a mostly invisible entity that was able to speak, affect the physical environment, and shapeshift. Some accounts record the spirit also to have been clairvoyant and capable of crossing long distances with superhuman speed. In 1894, newspaper editor Martin V. Ingram published his Authenticated History of the Bell Witch. The book is widely regarded as the first full-length record of the legend and a primary source for subsequent treatments. The individuals recorded in the work were known historical personalities. In modern times, some skeptics have regarded Ingram's efforts as a work of historical fiction or fraud. Other researchers consider Ingram's work a nascent folklore study and an accurate reflection of belief in the region during the 19th century. The Bell Witch Cave, which is located on the old Bell property, 
became a source of continuing interest in the 20th century. Contemporary artistic interpretations such as in film and music have expanded the reach of the legend beyond the regional confines of the southern United States. In his book An Authenticated History of the Bell Witch, author Ingram published that the poltergeist's name was Kate after the entity claimed at one point to be Old Kate Bat's Witch and continued to respond favorably to the name. The physical activity centered on the Bell's youngest daughter, Betsy, and her father, and Kate expressed particular displeasure when Betsy became engaged to a local named Joshua Gardner. The haunting began in 1817, when John Bell witnessed the apparition of a strange creature resembling a dog. Bell fired at the animal, but it disappeared. John's son, Drew Bell, approached an unknown bird perched on a fence that flew off and was of extraordinary size. The daughter, Betsy, observed a girl in a green dress swinging from the limb of an oak tree. Dean, a family slave, reported being followed by a large black dog on evenings he visited his wife. Activity moved to the Bell household, with knocking heard along the door in the walls. The family heard sounds of gnawing on the beds, invisible dogs fighting, and chains along the floor. About this time, John Bell began experiencing paralysis in his mouth. The phenomena grew in intensity as sheets were pulled from beds when the children slept. Soon the entity pulled hair and scratched the children, with particular emphasis on Betsy, who was slapped, pinched, and stuck with pins. The Bells turned to family friend James Johnston for help. After retiring for the evening at the Bell home, Johnston was awakened that night by the same phenomena. That morning he told John Bell it was a spirit, just like in the Bible. Soon word of the haunting spread, and many began to travel long distances just to see the witch. The apparition began to speak out loud and was asked, Who are you and what do you want? And the voice would answer, I am a spirit. I was once very happy, but I've been disturbed. The spirit offered diverse explanations of why it had appeared, tying its origin to the disturbance of a Native American burial mound located on the property, and said Drew Bell and Bennett Porter on an unproductive search for buried treasure. With the emergence of full conversations, the spirit repeated word for word two sermons given 13 miles apart at the same time. The entity was well acquainted with biblical text and appeared to enjoy religious arguments. As another amusement, the witch shared gossip about activities in other households and at times appeared to leave for brief moments to visit homes after an inquiry. John Johnston, a son of James, devised a test for the witch, knowing no one outside his family would know, asking the entity what his Dutch step-grandmother in North Carolina would say to the slaves if she thought they did something wrong. The witch replied with his grandmother's accent, "'Hut, tut! What has happened now?' In another account, an Englishman stopped to visit and offered to investigate." On remarking on his family overseas, the witch suddenly began to mimic his English parents. Again in the early morning, the witch woke him to voices of his parents, worried as they'd heard his voice as well. The Englishman quickly left that morning, and later wrote to the Bell family that the entity had visited his family in England, and he apologized for his skepticism. At times, the spirit displayed a form of kindness, especially towards Lucy, John Bell's wife, who the spirit called the most perfect woman to walk the earth. The witch would give Lucy fresh fruit and sing hymns to her, and showed John Bell Jr. a measure of respect. Referring to John Bell Sr. as Old Jack, the witch claimed she intended to kill him, and signaled this intention through curses, threats, and afflictions. The story climaxes with the Bell Patriarch being poisoned by the witch. Afterward, the entity interrupted the mourners by singing drinking songs. 
1821, as a result of the witches' entreatment, Betsy Bell called off her engagement to Joshua Gardner. Subsequently, the entity told the family it was going to leave, but returned in seven years, in 1828. Well, the witch returned on time to Lucy and her sons Richard and Joel with similar activities as before, but they chose not to encourage it, and the witch appeared to leave again. Several accounts say that during his military career, Andrew Jackson was intrigued with the story, and he and a few men came to check it out, but were frightened away by the witch. In a manuscript attributed to Richard Williams Bell, he wrote that the spirit remained a mystery. He wrote, "'Whether it was witchery, such as afflicted people in past centuries and the darker ages, whether some gifted fiend of hellish nature, practicing sorcery for selfish enjoyment, or some more modern science akin to that of mesmerism, or some hobgoblin native to the wilds of the country, or a disembodied soul shut out from heaven, or an evil spirit like one of those that Paul drove out in the Bible, setting them mad, or a demon let loose from hell, I am unable to decide, nor has anyone yet divined its nature or cause for appearing. And I trust this description of the monster in all forms and shapes, and of many tongues, will lead experts who may come with a wiser generation to a correct conclusion and satisfactory explanation. You might remember that recently we did a story on Kincaid's Cave, and we mentioned a hoaxer named Mulhattan. It comes up again in this story. It reads, A follow-up report was published on February 18, 1890, with the title, A Weird Witch, More Tales of a Mulhattanish Flavor, from Adam Station. So they were wise to him, too, in Tennessee. In the late 19th century, Joseph Mulhattan was a known hoaxer of newspaper articles, it reads. The article was republished a few days later with the subtitle, more tales of a fishy flavor. In the account, the entity was referred to only as the witch. The article reports that Mr. Johnson was visiting Buck Smith and was discussing a recent visitation of the ghost at his home. They heard a knocking at the door, and when they opened the door, the knocking began at another door. They sat down, and the dog began to fight with something invisible. Two minutes later, the door flew open and fire spread across the room, blown by a cyclonic wind, with the coals disappearing as they tried to put it out. That evening, Mr. Johnson started home on his horse, and something jumped on the back, grabbing his shoulder as he tried to restrain the horse. He felt it jump off as he neared his home, and heard it move in the leaves into the woods. And now we need to give the skeptics a shot at it. According to Brian Dunning, no one has ever seen this diary, and there is no evidence that it ever existed. Conveniently, every person with first-hand knowledge of the Bell Witch hauntings was already dead when Ingram started his book. In fact, every person with second-hand knowledge was even dead. Dunning also concluded that Ingram was guilty of falsifying another statement, that the Saturday Evening Post had published a story in 1849 accusing the Bell's daughter Elizabeth of creating the witch, an article which was not found at the time. Joe Nickel argues the chapter includes the use of Masonic themes and anachronism which impacts credibility. Jim Brooks, a native of Adams, writes in his work, Bell Witch Stories You Never Heard, that Bell family descendants report that Ingram did not return the manuscript to the family. Brooks explores the possibility that Ingram would have had an enhanced opportunity to modify the story by not returning the papers. Keith Cartwright of the University of North Florida compares Ingram's work with Uncle Remus folklore, as recorded by Joel Chandler Harris, and also as an expression of the psychological shame of slavery and Native American removal. The slaves in the account are regarded as experts on the witch, with Uncle Zeke identifying the witch as dat Injun spirit. Pretty much the same, except the role of the trickster wasn't played by Br'er Rabbit, but the Witch Rabbit, the spirit's common animal form. The witch appears as a catch-all for every reminder of resistant agency.
paranormal investigator Benjamin Radford, as well as Brian Dunning, concluded that there is no evidence that Andrew Jackson visited the Bell family home. During the years in question, Jackson's movements were well documented, and nowhere in history or his writings is there evidence of his knowledge of the Bell family. According to Dunning, the 1824 presidential election was notoriously malicious, and it seems hard to believe that his opponent would have overlooked the opportunity to drag him through the mud for having lost a fight to a witch. The Bell Witch story and the Bell Witch Cave still remains active today. It's up to you to decide whether it's an urban legend or just a long-lasting hoax. Our next and last story, Cowboy, a legendary commando in America's secret war in Vietnam. This story is a true one. There were a number of legends about heroes of war in Vietnam, and a couple of them involved cowboys, but there was only one commando named Cowboy, and he was Vietnamese. The stories told about him made him out to be a superhero, and in truth, he was. The only story that got it wrong said that he died during the war. That one was wrong. During the Vietnam War, there was a small group of special operations troops who took the fight to the enemy. Military Assistance Command Vietnam Studies and Observations Group, MACV-SOG, was a highly secret outfit comprised of Green Berets, Navy SEALs, and Air Commandos who conducted covert cross-border operations deep into Cambodia, Laos, and North Vietnam. SOG recon teams consisted of a few special forces operators and their indigenous troops, or the Little People, as the Americans affectionately and respectfully called them. Khan Cowboy Doan, a South Vietnamese commando, was one of them. In the early 1960s, Cowboy's father saw that America would have a bigger role in Vietnam's affairs, and so prompted his son to learn English. And so Cowboy became an interpreter. As American involvement in the Southeast Asian country grew, Cowboy began working for the American forces and soon ended up in SOG. During his career in SOG, Cowboy participated in scores of missions. He was part of the relief column that went into Lang Vey, a special forces camp that had been overrun by NVA tanks and troops in the early stages of the siege of Kisan. He also took part in a mission where his nine-man team squared off against 10,000 NVA troops. While there in SOG, Cowboy narrowly escaped death numerous times. In one instance, he didn't go out with his team for some reason, and the team, ST Alaska, ended up being wiped out save for one man, who escaped and evaded for two days before getting picked up. In 1972, after operating in SOG for six years, Cowboy lost his leg during a mission across the fence. At the end of his career, he had served in numerous recon teams, including ST Alaska, Virginia, Idaho, and Alabama. After Saigon fell in 1975, Cowboy thought that the cleverest thing to do in order to avoid the wrath of the North Vietnamese was to go north, where they wouldn't be expecting him. After 11 years and 14 failed escape attempts from the country, he managed to reach the Philippines in 1986 and from there came to the U.S. Recently, Cowboy contracted COVID-19 and had to be hospitalized with serious symptoms. What's worse, his entire family was also infected, including his wife, son, and grandson. As a consequence, they were hard put to make ends meet. Cowboy was released from the hospital and is back in his home, but he still has to go through dialysis twice a day, totaling 9 to 10 hours of treatment. The good news, however, is that he is improving by the day. Some of Cowboy's SOG buddies have set up a GoFundMe campaign to support their brother-in-arms and his family. Please thank every person who donated to help me and my family. I can't believe it. We are amazed. Please tell every person, you have rescued my life. Men like Cowboy fought for their country against the communist tide. 
but they also fought for their American brothers, with whom they share a bond that only war and adversity can forge. By the way, I have a few reactions to the article I just quoted, and these say all you need to know about Cowboy Doan. Clancy says, Thank you very much for this article. I know that this, very sadly, is a moot point, but someone like Cowboy should be set for the rest of his damn life, and so should his family. The fact that they have to rely on a GoFundMe campaign is ridiculous. He's a GD hero, and he deserves to be treated as such. Just goes to show how brainless and lacking of balls our politicians are, and how they don't even try to understand the sacrifices these men made. God bless our veterans. This one from Sugarland Stump. An amazing story. Such courage. I enjoyed reading about him in some SOG books. Amazing stories. That podcast was amazing. The SOG missions were insane. About the SOG missions across the fence into Laos to disrupt the supply chain. Unbelievable history. David John says, I'm a veteran of 32 years in the British Army, and I've recently been medically discharged for PTSD. Cowboy, what a man to have on your team. A true warrior. I have rejoined the reenactment group. I'm focusing on everything SOG. Arthur Head says, Cowboy was never on a recon team, but he sure as hell did save a bunch of recon teams in his time as a South Vietnamese helicopter pilot attached to SOG. To say this man had stones is a massive understatement. I saw him many times during my own SOG tour, and even rode in and out of missions in his helicopter a few times. He once took it upon himself to fly into Laos, where the recon team I was on was surrounded and being overran, when he was out flying around and heard the U.S. Army lead helicopter pilot say he was refusing to land to try to pick us up because it was too dangerous. Cowboy came up on the radio and said, No sweat, I come get you. And that is exactly what he did, with no support at all other than the A1Es strafing and bombing around us trying to keep the NVA at bay, and his co-pilot leaning out of the window of the King Bee firing his forty-five, and the door gunner firing his thirty cal out the other side. I and many, many other SF vets might not be here today if it weren't for the courage of this brave man. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. If you enjoy our show, Please do take a moment and leave us a review, especially you Apple listeners. We do have a few recent reviews we'd like to share with you. Outstanding, five stars. John, been listening for a while now to 1001 Heroes. I thought you did an outstanding job on the July 13th episode with Sam Mitchum. As an older listener whose great-great-grandfather was a poor Mississippian who fought and was wounded in the Civil War, this episode was of particular interest to me. Kudos to you for bringing these historical backstories to life in such an interesting way. Not bad for a damn Yankee. Also enjoy the latest Lost Minds episodes. Keep up the good work. La Blue. La Blue, thank you very much for your review. And by the way, I was born in California and currently live in Virginia. And you know what Virginians say. American by birth, Virginian by the grace of God. And this one, five stars, 1001 Heroes series. Both my wife and I really love these podcasts. We often listen to them while on car trips together. We especially like your straightforward tone and non-revisionist style. History is what it is, not what we think it should have been through our current lens, as that lens will constantly change. Thank you very much, Freedact, Apple Podcast, United States of America. Couldn't agree with you more. And this one, Love 1001, five stars. Thoroughly enjoy these podcasts. I wish John would do one on the Lost Roads Gold Mine and the connection to Brigham Young and the Mormon Church. That one from Mule Skinner 45 Apple Podcast. Mule Skinner, we did it. Hope you enjoyed it. 
Thank you all so very, very much for listening at 1001 Heroes. Please do share our show with others. We appreciate that, and that's how we grow. We'll return next Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.